folks, welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier, and of course, improving your triathlon performance. Now, during the last few years, I've really started to appreciate the multiple benefits of sleep, but I've also been puzzled by why humans are constantly trying to find ways of getting less sleep. Today's guest is Dr. Mita Singh, a board-certified physician and psychiatrist specializing in sleep science. Dr. Singh will be helping us to understand what happens when we sleep, why getting more time in bed is nearly always a good thing, and providing us with more than a few tips on how to make sure we get the best night's sleep possible. All right then, enough of that, over to Dr. Singh. Well, I'm so excited. Dr. Singh, Mita Singh, thank you very much for being on the show. I, uh, I've, I've listened to you speak and I'm glad that we're able to share your expertise with our listeners. Thank you for having me. So you are a performance sleep optimization specialist. It seems like you started out as a psychiatrist specializing in sleep science. Now, what, what we really wanted to know to start with was, did the sleep science come after you were working as a psychiatrist or was it at the same time? So, um, so I am a, I'm a doctor, I'm a physician. And I, after I went to medical school, I did a, a, my training in psychiatry at the Mayo Clinic. And in your, in the final year during your training, uh, you have to decide what you want to do next, right? You know, you can either go out into practice or you can uh, decide if you want to super specialize. And that's when I discovered sleep. And so sleep is a behavior uh-huh. And uh, so definitely falls within the purview of a behavioral science. Okay. You know, it's, it's something that happens deep in the brain. And sleep medicine as a super specialization has been around for about, uh, I want to say about 30 years. You know, so it's fairly new and it's deeply interesting and very intriguing. Mm. And it continues to be that way. I mean, I think it's such a rapidly growing field. Yeah. I did my I did my sleep medicine fellowship at the Henry Ford Sleep Disorder Center. And I was, um, you know, I, I worked um I, I worked in a clinic seeing sleep patients. And I also were, was helping, we have the three main auto companies here, and they would often travel and so I'd help them with jet lag, et cetera. And then a few years ago, I just by happenstance started working with the National Football League, the local team here. Yeah, I follow the NFL. So you do? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so it's 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 a you know it's it's a good it's a great it's I think one of the best professional organizations in the world. Mm-hmm. I would say. And so uh, you know the local team physician and the head athletic trainer they were trying to look out for their athlete help as well as for their coaches. Mm-hmm. you know, the, the athletic trainer. So the team behind the team and I started working with them and then sort of uh, started working with the local major league baseball team. And then, you know, got working with other teams in different professional leagues and, you know, sort of developed this unique practice. And then um, I'm, I'm, I work mostly as a consultant now and mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's what I do. Do, do you? Pre- I know you've done some work, or you do work in the corporate field as well. Do you prefer working in in sport or in business? Well, I think I think um, my first love is working with sports because I find that 
when you're, you know, when you're working in sports, he has a group of people who really want to change, mm. right? For them making that, you know, it's not as if you're, although there is some negotiation back and forth and you can talk about fine tuning, um, whatever program you want to bring about, but there is an, a buy-in from the very beginning and that really helps. Mm. I found um, what happened is that in the last three, four years, there was some, there was a transition because uh, in the C-suite executives, they, you know, they, they think their mindset is of that, of being highly competitive and, um, you know, they want to do well, they want to get, be the best and are, it's, are like athletes. So, you know, I, it'd be unfair if I, if I said I like one versus the other, I have to tell you, I, um, it's, it's very intriguing. It's intriguing to work in the business world. Mm. And as well as, um, the, you know, and I'm, I'm always happy with any work I get. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. I have, um, most of the people I work with are triathletes, but they are also those C-suite executives that you talk of. They're either working at the very highest level in a large organizations or they're entrepreneurs running their own businesses or they're, they're consultants. There's often a lot of travel. But, and, and there's a particular personality type, which I'm sure, sure you've identified. And they have time is scarce. And then what they do is they decide they need a physical challenge. So decide to do the hardest of sports to train for, which is triathlon, um, yeah. which leaves absolutely no time to spare. And yeah. so then we get this peculiar paradox where in order to get more training in, they are willing to sacrifice one thing. They can't sacrifice work. They can't sacrifice their children. Or they can sacrifice sleep. Yeah, that works, doesn't it? I'll get up earlier to do that training. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I personally, I can't think of any situation where more sleep is a bad thing. Um, but but equally, a lot of people seem to think that less sleep is a good thing because it makes you more productive. But I'm I'm sure you'll right. be able to point me to lots of research that shows that's not the yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, no, I, I don't. I mean, I, and this there is a lot of research that's already been done. There's more research coming out. And the thing about it is that I think because we live in a hustle culture and we, especially in the Western world, we want mm-hmm. to, you know, we want to make sure that that not just are we always at work, there is a little bit of we want other people to know that we're at work. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, one of the things that is easily uh, sidelined is sleep. And I always tell people that if you think about what the main functions of sleep really are and what happens to your brain when you don't get enough sleep, you know, it's, I'm not surprised that people make poor decisions. So sleep is one of the things that happens when you get less sleep is that the, the, your prefrontal cortex, which is that part of the brain that is responsible for good decision making and multitasking, it preferentially gets impaired and you become overly emotional. So people are likely, their judgment is impaired. And so when people say they can get by with their sleep, they don't really know what they're talking about. That's number one. The second thing is that, you know, we we think about, traditionally, we think about work and the effects of poor sleep on work as being uh, siloed into either presenteeism or absenteeism. I don't know if you've heard of these terms, uh-huh. but you know we're well aware of them. So absenteeism is that you 
don't feel good enough, you actually don't show up to work at all, right? That's lost productivity. Presenteeism happens when you're at work, but you're zoned out, you know, you're on the internet, et cetera. You just cannot pay attention. So you're mm-hmm. there, but really you're not there. And that's lost productivity too. But, um, you know, poor, in addition to that, poor sleep can profoundly affect even how you function at work. So if you're a leader, it affects the way that you interact with other people. Mm. It affects, um, th- there's actually this really cool study that looks at ethics. And it find, and, and, and so in the, you know, and typically when we think about people as being, uh, when we think of ethic uh, or ethical people, we think of people as either they're ethical or they're non-ethical. But the data shows that lack of sleep can make you act in unethical manner, mm-hmm. you know. So it's it, it, it. So the way that you actually show up to work, the w- whether you pay attention, whether you is profoundly affected by the amount of sleep you've had. And um, I, the other thing I would I would tell you is that, especially in today's world where you're working with CEOs or C-suite executives who want to lead other people, um, charismatic leadership is really important because these leaders are you know you they have to lead other people to, uh, and they have to convince them of the vision of a company and they have to convince them to, to work hard. And we know that if you don't get enough sleep, you're not, you, you know, you, you're not, you don't have empathy. You don't connect with other people. You're less charismatic as a leader. Mm. And so you're less likely to do what your most basic job as a leader is, which is lead other people. You mentioned that there's a lot of people that think they can get by on less sleep. Um, And I hear people talk about Margaret Thatcher is one person who's often quoted as somebody. She said, I only I can operate on four hours sleep a night. Um, You know, and she seemed to manage the country fairly well in her time there. She did. She did have, uh, I think she had Alzheimer's and dementia at the end. So I wonder whether that was connected with the sleep. Uh, But also I, I, I have clients who, um, sleep five hours a night and or are in bed for five, five and a half hours a night. And yet they say that they feel perfectly fine. They feel fresh. Um, you know, they, they run their businesses successfully. I wonder if there is a small percentage of people who can get by on less sleep or are we saying that that's a, just a blanket thing that if you're getting less than six hours sleep a night, you really are underperforming and you could do, you could do even better with more than six hours a night. So I think I think there are multiple questions in that one yeah. question. So let's yeah. let, let's take them apart one by one. The first thing is that for adults, the recommendation, the recommended time that they need to sleep is between seven to nine hours to function. Okay. Definitely, if you're getting less than six hours of sleep, you're likely to be sleep deprived. Now, when you get less sleep on a chronic basis, Simon, mm. what happens is that when you get less sleep on a on a chronic basis, on objective tests like, uh, you know, your reaction time or your accuracy or, um, you know, your judgment may be impaired, but your perception of how sleepy you are, that does not parallel the trend. So what I'm saying is that that when you don't get enough sleep on a regular basis, your the accuracy of your self-reported sleepiness 
is questionable. So mm-hmm. you're not like, you, because, because this becomes your new baseline and this is the amount of sleep that, that people think they, they need. And so th- that becomes, so they don't have anything to compare to. That's mm-hmm. number one. The second thing is that, of course, because there is human variability and there are some people who are less, who don't tolerate sleep deprivation as well as other people do. Mm-hmm. And, but, and there is, a, there is a, uh, you know, one specific genetic mutation, which is associated with re- less requirements for sleep. And the problem is that, that that is a very rare mutation. So most of the people you're talking to, they don't fall mm. into that category. So I'm sorry to say that's not, that's not, doesn't really happen. The third thing is that, that for most people, you know, for them to feel whether they need more sleep or not, they actually have to do the actual change before the buy-in occurs. Does that make right. sense? Yes. So they, they almost have to, it's almost as if, you know, you can convince, you can talk to them about getting more sleep. They have to sort of experiment by themselves and perhaps, you know, start getting half an hour or an hour extra of sleep see the change that occurs with it and then the buy-in occurs right and and so that's right and that sometimes is something that might occur the and the final thing is that uh, that you know people who are young and who are doing really really well and are able to say that they they don't feel the requirement to get more sleep are very productive those young healthy people and for me many times those are athletes they also get older right so look at margaret thatcher i mean that's a that's a perfect example in which you know there was significant dementia at an older age and one of the things that we know that happens during your sleep is that it's only while you're asleep that um, blood rushes through your brain and sort of power washes your brain of any of the toxins that have accumulated by being awake during the day. Mm. And, and perhaps that has a role to play in the dementia that develops later in life. I get what you're saying. So we might not realize just at the moment what trouble we're storing up for ourselves in later right. life. Right. So just well, to go- also, I, I want to, you know, I just want to circle because this is an important topic, topic because a lot of people that you're going to mm. talk to or, you, you know, they, they're going to say, well, no, I think I'm okay with getting six hours on a regular basis. And I always tell people that, um, you know, it's it's akin to somebody who's drinking at the bar. Uh, you know, if you've been drinking at the bar, you're the last person who should decide whether you're fit to get in the car and drive home. <laughs> and it's very similar to because your judgment is, is impaired. And now that we have, you know, we have a bunch of these devices that actually measure your sleep and they measure heart rate variability, et cetera. I would, I would tell you that oftentimes people come to me they wear these devices for a week or 10 days and then they go back and they look at, you know, what the HRV is doing or, and they see that there is, there are these profound effects on their health that they were unaware of. Mm. And sometimes that is enough reason for them to make a difference. I'd like to come back to sleep trackers later, if, if we may. Uh-huh. Um, just to pick up on one of the points you said about um, for, for the average adult, they should get between seven to nine hours of sleep per night. So um, I think this always causes a bit of confusion if somebody gets to bed at 10 p.m. and they wake up at six, 
that's eight hours. Now, to me, that's eight hours of sleep opportunity. But according to my yes. sleep tracker, I'm never asleep for eight hours. I'm asleep yes. for maybe six and a half or seven hours. So are you saying that they, they should be getting seven to nine hours of actual, you know, recognizable sleep or they should be in bed for between seven and nine hours to give themselves the opportunity? Uh, well, I'm, I'm saying that they need seven to nine hours of sleep. Okay. And I mean, so, so I think it's important for your audience that we define what sleep is. So like I said, sleep is a normal physiological behavior. And it's, it's a, it's, we spend a third of our life sleeping, one third of our life. And it's while we're asleep that our brains are disengaged from the environment and they're unresponsive to the, to the environment. And while your, your brain is disengaged from the environment, it forces your brain and your body to rest. And that's where rest, where recovery happens, right? So mm-hmm. think about nightly sleep as a way to prepare you for being awake the two thirds of the day that you're supposed to be awake. Now, when you fall asleep, you fall into sleep through different stages. So you're depending on how the neurotransmitters in your brain are being secreted. And depending on the different brain waves that are being generated, you have light sleep, which is N1, you know, slightly deeper sleep is N2, Delta sleep, which is deep sleep, dream sleep, which is REM sleep, and every stage of sleep is important and serves a certain uh, function. And you know, you cycle through these different stages of sleep all through the night, and there are periods of awakening. And so, when you're in bed and you're trying to fall asleep, what people need is is seven to nine hours of sleep. And so, it's very important that they provide them sells the opportunity to do so, which is what you're referring to, is that you want to make sure if you get into bed at 10 and you get out of bed at six, you've spent eight hours in bed. And hopefully you're hopefully you're spending most of this time that you're in bed actually asleep. I'm glad you raised the issue of the various stages of sleep because I if I may, I'd like to ask you to just go into those a bit deeper and explain what happens within each stage. And also if well, this is another question following on. So maybe I'll get you, maybe I'll come back to that later and, and just ask you to explain what happens in the various stages of sleep and why each of them is important, which was a um, a statement you just made. Right. So so you know, I was I was just recently reading about um the history of sleep, right? You know, oh. up till a hundred years ago, sleep was considered to be a completely passive state. It was when you were like offline. Everything in the, you know, it, it was as if the lights were, that somebody pulled the plug. You were, you know, there was, not, there was nothing that would differentiate being asleep from being dead or being in a coma. <laughs> except, that, except that we now know that your brain is rather active while you're asleep. It just, the activity is just very different from when you're awake. So while you're awake, you know, sensory information, you use your five senses to get inf- information in, and then your brain does respond in whatever way it's, it's supposed to. One of the first things that happens when you fall asleep is that you become, you're blind. So there's no visual information coming in and your brain waves start slowing down and becoming more synchronized. And so, you know, the, what, what sleep scientists did about 30 to 40 years ago, they put EEG signals on your brain. And depending on what your brain activity looked like, we divided the sleep, nighttime sleep as light sleep, which is N1 and 2. Deep sleep, which you know, which is looks like really large brain waves. 
your brain is sort of synchronized and it's beating in a way. Um, and, and it's really difficult to awaken you from deep sleep. Deep sleep is also where muscle restoration happens. You know, your heart rate, your respiration, it's at its minimum. Mm. Uh, your muscles are recovering. Um, you know, every organ in your body is in its the recovery stage. Um, and then you have a stage of sleep, which look, which is called dream sleep or rapid eye movement, REM sleep. And during dream sleep, your brain waves again, become a little faster. So they look almost like you're awake, but there's again, no sensory information going in, nothing coming out. And you, in fact, in fact, two things happen during dream sleep. One is that you have these rapid eye movements back and forth, which is where we get the, with the name of rapid eye movement sleep. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is that your, your body is actually paralyzed. And so during a certain part of your sleep, your body is paralyzed and that's what it's a, it's a protective mechanism. So we don't act out our dreams. In fact, there's a disorder in which people will act out their dreams. So that's what uh, REM sleep is. And REM sleep is responsible for adding, for learning. It's important for adding emotional context to memory. So, you know, every stage of sleep is, has a certain function and is almost equally important. So, for instance, if we're studying, if we're, if we're growing up as children at school, um, we definitely want to be paying attention to sleep because that's how yeah. that helps us to remember stuff. If we're, um, at university and typically at university, you know, it's all about drinking and staying out late. And we know yeah. we're going to talk about that later and how that impairs your sleep. So perhaps it's any wonder that I struggled with my degree. Um, <laughs> as, as an adult, maybe we're doing um, extracurricular study, maybe we're doing an MBA, but we're going away and we're meeting all these other exciting people and perhaps we're staying in a hotel and our sleep's impaired. So, um, and I, I, don't, I hadn't until recently, I'd never really made the connection between the ability to remember facts and figures and information and the type of sleep you were getting and the quality of sleep. So, um, um, and I'm not, I'm not sure how many other people are aware of that. Uh, so I do see from wearing the whoop, it tells me what percentage of my sleep mm-hmm. um, falls into each of these categories. Are there, yeah, if, if there's anything we can actually do to control this is, is another question, but are there certain amounts of REM and deep sleep we need each night in order to satisfy our brain and our body's requirements? Yes. So typically there is a, there typically there is a range of normal, what the normal stages of sleep are like. And I, I will, you know, before I start talking about this, I want your audience to know that I do not want them to worry about what the stages of your sleep look like. And the reason why you don't want to worry about it, and the reason why wearing any device, if it, whatever it tells you about your stages of sleep, it's irrelevant information. You've got, there's nothing you can do about it, right? You have no control over it. However, so you spend about 50% of your sleep is light sleep, you know, and, and 25%, 50, 50 to 60% is light sleep. 25% is dream sleep. And, you know, depending on how old you are is, is how much deep sleep you get. So, Kids, teenagers, young adults have more deep sleep. As you get older, the amount of deep sleep mm-hmm. reduces. And, um, and like I said, you know, every stage of sleep is important. So as long as you, as long as you pay attention to what you were saying in the beginning, which is getting into bed at a certain time and waking up, getting out of bed at a certain time. So giving yourself a sleep, adequate sleep opportunity 
and you create the right environment by making sure the bedroom's cold and dark and electronic free, et cetera, that will allow your brain to do its thing and to make sure that all the qualities of, you know, all the different stages of sleep are present. Um, there are some disorders. So like if you have something called obstructive sleep apnea, which mm-hmm. your throat closes up on you, then you don't get into deeper stages of sleep. And you generally don't have, you know, dream sleep. There are other disorders like REM, like uh, periodic leg movement disorder. There's some medications that can suppress certain stages of sleep. So that sometimes can happen. And I want to I want to say that there was a question there. I was thinking about what did I answer your question? I think so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe I, maybe maybe what you're thinking about will come up with my next few questions. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. So. That, that was my next question. I mean, you, you mentioned sleep hygiene there, which is cool room, dark room, et cetera. M- my next question actually was about um, the stages of sleep. You, you've said pretty much it doesn't matter how much deep sleep or REM sleep you're getting because once you've closed your eyes and drifted off, your body's just going to get what it needs. Yes. Um, so there's nothing there's nothing we can do to influence each of those, either positively or negatively, or is there? Well, well there is. So, so there are... So- so, you know, and, and this is sort of connected with that question of what sleep hygiene is and what sleep mm. hygiene is, is a set of external things that you can do that around your bedtime, around your sleep that can influence how well you sleep. Right. So there can be things like, like the three simplest things that you can do is um, your caffeine intake or nicotine, you know, intake. Um, the alcohol intake, as well as exposure to bright light. So caffeine is a stimulant. What it does is it it goes and attaches itself to that part of the brain where where the neurotransmitter of sleepiness in the brain gets attached. So it blocks the effect of sleepiness. It definitely makes you alert, makes you more accurate. And so if you drink caffeine too close to your bedtime, you're either you will have problems falling asleep or it will prevent you from getting into deeper stages of sleep. Yes, go ahead. I have a specific question on caffeine. Um, I have a couple of friends who are fond of having an espresso or two when we leave uh-huh. a restaurant and then going home and, you know, they might even have another one before they go to bed. And I'm thinking, well, th- th- I asked them about this and they always yeah. say, well, I get, I go straight to sleep. So, uh, are they are they these unique individuals that are just super fast metabolizers, or does does them going to sleep confuse their own mind in terms of the quality of sleep they're getting? And I think I think that the, it's a combination of both of those. So there there is a difference between. I, it's kind of ironic that you're just drinking a cup of tea, or, or is no, it's it's, tea, right? it's just warm it's water warm. actually. Okay. Yeah. So so definitely there is. You know, there are some people who are fast metabolizers. There are some who are slower metabolizers. And many times there are people who are significantly sleep deprived. And when they, you know, a cup of coffee at night makes no difference to them and they don't have any problems falling asleep. But many times the effect it has on your sleep stages, you're not aware of. So that's number one. So drinking a double espresso after dinner is always a bad idea, not, not to be recommended. And it will, it does prevent you from, you know, even if, even if it doesn't fall, prevent you from falling asleep, it prevents you from getting into deeper stages of sleep. Mm. And what that does is that because you haven't gotten into the deeper stages of sleep, you wake up the next day, you're not as refreshed. 
Well, guess what you're going to do then? You're going to reach for another cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it, it is a vicious cycle. And don't get me wrong. I love my coffee. I like to drink coffee in the morning, but I am aware that if I drink coffee after 2 p.m., it will impair or it will affect how I'm going to sleep at night. Mm. For others, it might be 5 p.m. For another person, it may be another time. So people are different. But overall, um, you know, that's what caffeine does. And then, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, exa- and I'm exactly the same. I'm exactly right. the same. I don't, I don't drink and, any coffee after noon. Yes. And then, and then, so think about, uh, think about in, you know, one of the major, you know, functions of a well-rested brain is good judgment. And when you get sleep deprived, your judgment is impaired and that does not respond to stimulants. And so people then, when they're sleep deprived, they're making, they drink coffee and all they're doing is they're making bad decisions just faster because they are all caffeinated up. So you talk, I, talk, talk about sleep hygiene then. So you, you, you mentioned right. um, caffeine and nicotine and bright light. So um, when I finish this podcast with you, it's going to be around 7, 7.30 in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually go to bed about half nine and then read for half an hour. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that while I'm sitting in my house here watching the TV, I should turn the lights off? Should I wear some blue light blocking glasses to watch the telly? Um, well, so, so how about I give you the science and then you decide okay. what, what fits best into your life, right? So, yeah. so in addition to the fact that the longer we stay awake, the more the sleepiness neurotransmitters accumulates in our brain. And that's what makes us sleepy mm-hmm. and we at night. The other thing that decides how sleepy or alert you're going to be in a 24-hour period is something called your circadian clock. And so the circadian clock is a timekeeping system that's present in our, in our brains. And that it, so it keeps time over a circadian, which is like approximately 24 hour long. And the circadian clock, so it's, it's in our brains, it keeps time. And on a daily basis, it's reset by exposure to light and dark. So think of light in the morning or during the day as being an alertness signal to your brain and darkness being the signal that your brain needs to know that it's ready to sleep and it's time to switch to the night mode. The problem is that, you know, a hundred years ago, if you were living in, uh, where are you located right now? In Yorkshire, in England. Okay. Well, so if you were living in, in Yorkshire, there would be the only source of, of, you know, light at night, uh, 100, 150 years ago, would be candlelight. And candles were expensive to burn. And so, you know, one of the things that people did is that they, they'd go to bed when it became dark. They'd wake up in the, mo- uh, you know, in the morning. But now with the invention of the light bulb and because of these handheld devices, there's light everywhere. And so what's happening now is that at night when you're falling asleep, that light prevents your brain from secreting melatonin. So you don't get that signal that you're ready to sleep. And that is why, so light is serving as the, it's a pollution at night. You know, it's, it's at the, you're get, getting exposed at the, at the wrong time. Perhaps dimming the lights might be a good idea. You know, most people like, you know, they brush their teeth, they have all the lights on just before they're about to fall asleep. Women will take their makeups off, et cetera. And, um, and that might, that's, 
that physiologically it's arousing. And then, of course, the blue light uh, blockers are if people have to do work on computers, uh, what that, you know, if you, if you were wearing blue light blocking glasses, it'll prevent that wavelength of light from entering your eye. And so it allows you to relax a little bit earlier. Okay. So I, I feel like that is part of my next question about pre and, pre and post-sleep routines. You talked about bright light in the morning, um, darker or dimmer light in the evening. Can, can we just finish off on sleep hygiene? So you talked about the three main ones, caffeine and nicotine and light. No, um, no, we, we did not. We, and alcohol. And alcohol. Okay. Let's talk about right. alcohol then. Right. So, so the thing about alcohol is that it is a, um, you know, the, initially it may actually help you fall asleep. Mm-hmm. But then as the night progresses, it as it gets metabolized, it tends to fracture your sleep. So it might wake you up, especially as you get older. So the, the thing about using alcohol as something to help you sleep, the, the problem with that is that, that if you need a glass of wine to help you fall asleep, now in three weeks, you're going to need a, gla- a glass and a half. And then because you, you develop tolerance to it, and then you're going to need more. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then people start having withdrawals. They, they may it, it prevents and, and it prevents you from reaching the deeper and REM stages of sleep. So that's the the, the third one. So those are the three main um, you know the three main I would say the large bins where people can make alterations to get a you know a good bang for the buck if they're trying to improve their sleep. Okay. How, how about things like room temperature, um, bedding, okay. you know, I mean, a big thing that I've always been keen to try to encourage people to do is to make sure the bedroom's not full of electronic gadgets and things that have got, you know, Wi-Fi transmitters and the phone lying there in the corner of the room charging. And um, to put it crudely, the bedroom's for two things, really. You probably, yeah, probably sleep, what... sleep and sex. I, Ex- I agree. Exactly. Right. So, so remember we were talking about the pre-bed routine and, and, and to be honest, the, the, the best time for a pre-bed routine is during the day. So during the day, if you expose yourself to bright light, and that might be a problem if you're in North Yorkshire at this time of the year. <laughs> you, right? no, you're sunny in Yorkshire all the time. Is it? <laughs> no. So, so get exposed to nice bright light during the day. You know, keep yourself active, exercise. And for a lot of our people that we work with, you know, who are on the go all the time, make sure you have some small breaks during the day. Mm. And those are things that actually help you prepare for a good night's sleep at night. And then at night, before you go to bed, it's, it's, always, a good, um, it's always a good policy to actually have an alarm set in the evening, not just in the morning. That reminds you that it's ready for you. You're ready to go to bed. And then you can develop a good winding down schedule. So maybe a hot bath or a shower, um, you know, reading, meditation, you know, perhaps like stretching exercises. Some people like to write down you know, kind of wind down, preferably preferably without electronics. So you don't want to be on the social media or, you know, down that rabbit hole. Mm. And then you want to keep your bedroom cold, dark and quiet because that helps. And I have to, so there's a, you know, it's not everybody likes it to be very quiet. Sometimes people like, like um, they like noise machines or sound machines that might help. And then, um, yeah. And so, I mean, th- those are all the things that you can do for sleep hygiene. You talk about this evening routine. Uh, I'm working with a lot of athletes who are working. So let's say they finish work, they get home. Then they 
are going to put on their running shoes and go out for a run. So maybe that's seven o'clock. So they're going to run for an hour. So they get back mm-hmm. at eight mm-hmm. and then they're going to have something to eat. So they have a shower and it's eight 30 before they've had something to eat. But in order to follow my advice and your advice about getting our sleep opportunity, they're going to be trying to get to bed at 10 o'clock. So from the time when they eat at half past eight to the time when they get up, to what they finished exercising at eight o'clock and now they've got to try and do all of that pre-sleep routine mm-hmm. in the next two hours including eating and metabolizing all of that food um if they have no option but to do that because the way their right. life's scheduled around work and children and traveling um how can they make the best of that time because right. i know the, these are common obstacles that i meet when i'm talking to people about the sleep as well i, I you know this has to happen that has to happen etc right 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 and so what time do people have to wake up? Well, um, let's say they're getting up at six, but then um, that that might be to get to the pool or to go for a night. It might be just to get the children ready to get them to school or mm-hmm. to get on the on right. the train to get to work. So, it, I mean, it varies from person to person, but these are common obstacles that I'm, right, I'm right, sort of right. experiencing. So I would say the simplest answer always is that if you can't get all the sleep that you need at night, mm-hmm. perhaps take a short nap during the day. Mm-hmm. That would count towards nighttime schedule, you know, uh, nighttime. Well, it counts towards the total amount of sleep that you actually need. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two is the winding down schedule. How long it takes you to wind down to get to bed is a very individual thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the more stressful the day you've had, the more driven that you are the longer it might take you to wind down because because it's like it's like it, it, the faster a car is driving uh-huh. it has to keep the distance between the car that's going in front of it because it's going to take you that much longer to break yeah yeah and i find that building small breaks during the day helps with taking the edge off when you're ready to go to bed so and it sounds you know, it sounds intu- counterintuitive because what you're saying is these people are so busy that they're on the go all the time. They have no time to themselves. And they're, and now, you know, now that they come home and they're, you know, they've exercised and now they have to try and wind down to go to bed. And I, what I'm saying is that for every 90 minutes or so of really intense work, if you have even five to 10 minutes mm. of downtime and downtime can be, um, you know, it should be off the computer, like not. Uh, it shouldn't involve electronics. If it's like walking, if it's interacting with other human beings, if it's you know that itself, um, you know, cuts that cycle of being of always being driven too hard. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's. I, I know. I, I I totally get what you're saying about it being counterintuitive, though, and I, and I I do think that perhaps sometimes we we mistake busyness for productivity. Yes. Yes. Right. So, so there is a difference between, you know, working longer and harder and working more effectively. Mm. And it's very difficult for people to comprehend. And I get a lot of pushback about this until you start talking about and exploring it further, because I promise you that nobody's working nonstop and being effective. Mm. You really need, you know, you really need those short breaks so that you can you can sort of recover and then come back to it and then mm-hmm. recover and come back to it. So that's number one. Number two is that that um, if 
uh, oftentimes it's a, it's a double-edged sword because sometimes people are so busy and they're so chronically they're not getting enough sleep that it doesn't matter what they do. Once they do get into bed, they just fall asleep because it's sleep is a biological need. Right. Yeah. And that does happen. I mean, you know, one of the, I do, I have, I do some work with the, the U S uh, uh, armed forces and, you know, oftentimes these soldiers, they, they, they'll fall asleep while there's gunfire all around them because sleep is a biological need, right? They'll fall asleep mm. in, in any circumstances. And then on the other hand, oftentimes, uh, you know, they, they have all the right circumstances. They get into bed and they find they just gone unwind. And there is something called worry time. Have you heard of that? Uh, so it's, it's so oftentimes when people are on the go and they get into bed, that's the first time they start to think about uh, something. Yeah, yeah. And so you sometimes early in the evening, you sit down with a piece of paper or perhaps an iPad or, you know, whatever you're using and sort of jot down and talk about, think through what you're going to do the next day and, write mm. things down and that sort of helps offload it from your brain. And it's, it is, it does take, um, you know, it's a habit. You have to work on it. It, it takes a while, but, but it's also very effective in helping them people mm. uh, unwind when they go to bed. Now that, that seems like a really good part of a pre-sleep routine is just to write, write stuff down. I've, I've tried that myself and found it to mm. be very effective. Um, you talked about decision-making and productivity. And, uh, but, but I'm interested in just exploring a little bit more about how sleep impacts things like your immune system. And that's particularly topical with COVID at the moment. Everybody's wondering right. what they can do to avoid getting ill. And it right. seems like to me, like getting a bit more sleep might help, um, about mental health as well. And I know that for a lot of people, mental health has become, um, a more topical subject and has been challenged in the last two years. And right. for the athletes listening, you, you've touched on it briefly when talking about deep sleep and human growth hormone but i'd like to talk about recovery as well not just from um not just from training but from injuries and from illness right so can, you, can you just elaborate a little bit more about the impact of sleep on all of those yes please? so the first thing i would say is that so so think about i think i think talking briefly about what the immune system will help your audience so you know your skin is the first barrier before any antigen can enter your body. But once it's in there, we have these, we have something called natural killer cells, which go and attach, uh, attach to any, any, um, you know, virus or bacteria. And, and that takes care of, of the infection. Like that's the first, first step in how the immunity steps in. And there's data that shows that if you don't get enough sleep, you're not, you don't mount that first immune, immune response in the first right. place. So you need, and, and this is really interesting data. What they, what they do is they, they take, take somebody, they introduce the rhinovirus, which is the common cold. And then they, you know, the, and the, in, in the experiment, they're either sleep deprived or they're allowed to, to get more sleep. And they're more likely to catch the infection if they're sleep deprived. So that clearly, you know, poor sleep is, increases their risk of getting an infection. And then once they get an infection, uh, you need sleep to recover from that, that, um, that infection. And then, you know, we talked about how it's during whatever you learn during the day, your brain stores memory of it, make, consolidates that memory while you're asleep. And that's what happens with immune cells too. So that, and that's how vaccines work. You know, 
you get exposed to an attenuated or a different part, you know, uh, inactive part of, uh, say, a virus, your body forms these antibodies. And then it's while you're asleep that it, that your immune cells form memory of how and what they would have had to do to attack this virus. And that's what, and then when, when you, you know, it's, it's, that immunity is formed while you're while you're sleeping, and then that's how you use vaccines work. Yes, on that, go ahead. On, on that specific subject, I remember reading something before the COVID vaccine started to be distributed yeah. in the UK. I remember reading a um, some papers about a couple of studies into hepatitis B vaccine. Yep. And, yeah, that's, um, that's what there, they did. There were there was maybe they were in California, weren't they? Both of these studies, um, and those people who were getting less than six or seven hours sleep a night had um, a, a lower take-up of the vaccine or a lower success of the vaccine than those people who were getting the range of sleep. Now, I remember talking to a couple of medic friends of mine and saying this, and they were going, oh, that's nonsense, you know. It doesn't no, no, matter about your sleep. And Because I've been advising people, you know, before you have your vaccine, yes, take it easy on your training and just bump up your sleep a little bit for the week before so that you've yes. got more chance of it being successful. And they were like, oh, that's all rubbish. Right, right. No, no, no. And, and, and well, so so here's what I'm going to say, I, I, you know, and that's part of why I do. And, you know, the, my friends who are in the sleep field do what we do is because it's still a very new field. And which mm. is why there are people who've gone to medical school or, you know, work in the medical field and are not aware of this. But mm. yes, yeah, sleep is is absolutely in- essential for your immune function. And it's it's absolutely essential for your vaccines to be effective. So Mm -hmm. vaccines, what they do is that they go and they train your immune cells to specifically fight a specific disease. Mm -hmm. And that training or memory consolidation that happens in those immune cells happens while you're asleep. So you want to be well rested for just for that. I mean, that, and, and also like think about the recovery from an infection. What is the first thing that happens when you get an infection? You become you sleep more, and you sleep longer because that's where recovery from an infection is happening. You know, yeah. I mean, I work with um, when I work with pro sports uh, when people get concussed, which is a a concussion yeah. is a it's an injury deep in the brain where you know because of because of movement. Um, there's sheer injury. And one of the first things that happens after that, a concussion is that they, people become very sleepy. They sleep longer. They, they nap during the day and it, because it's part of the recovery process. Mm. That's where the brain is, is actually trying to recover. Okay. Mm. So that was one question. There was another one. Well, it was, um, it was really just the impact of sleep on um, mental health and, and recovery. So we uh, sort of talked about recovery, but so mental health maybe would be the one to finish it off. Well, I think, I think that's, you know, that is one of my, I have to say one of my favorite topics to talk about and because think about sleep and mental health having a bi-directional relationship you know there is sleep problems are an integral part of almost all behavioral health issues so whether it's depression anxiety if it's like sub- alcohol or substance use bipolar disorder etc poor sleep is an integral part of the, these disorders if you don't treat the poor sleep the disorders you you know, don't completely recover. But then on the other hand, poor sleep itself is a risk factor for future behavioral Mm. health uh, disorder. And there's this really, really, really nice study that was done 
um, it was it was done in the 1950s. So they looked at medical students. They were all men because that's who most of the medical students were. And they, they looked at uh, one of the things they measured was poor sleep. And poor sleep predicted a higher likelihood of the, these physicians developing depression or substance use disorders later down the line. Mm. So it's a, it's a sick, and this has been, you know, there have been multiple meta-analysis in which they take all these studies and they, you know, they do a statistical analysis. And what they found is that poor sleep predicts mental health dis- disease. They, there's another, there's a study that just came out last year. And it's, uh, what it found is that improving sleep improves every aspect of mental health functioning. Right. So it's again, it's, 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 and I always tell people that people will worry about sleep and then the worry itself will cause poor sleep. And so the best way to cut that cycle is by addressing the sleep. You improve sleep, you know, think that sleep is that nightly reset button. It, it allows you to be, to present, you know, to be able to cope with the stresses the next day brings. Well, that was a lovely segue into my next question then. We talked about the whoop. There's also yes. the aura ring. I see you're wearing an Apple watch, which has a sleep tracking function now. Right. Um, do you place much accurate or do you place much store in the data that they're providing um, generally? Uh, because I know, and I've spoken to a few people who've, who've said that that data then creates um, sleep anxiety because yes, they've had a does. bad night's sleep right. and they've so, looked at this again, and they've thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to go to sleep. So then they don't go to sleep and then it tells them, well, you're not getting enough sleep. And so it the right. thing snowballs. Right, right. Well, I think I think that the horse has left the barn. <laughs> I think that the worrying about whether these devices are good for us or bad for us is, is a little late because I think they're here to stay. You know, people, we live in a world where people want to measure everything. I think that if you're going to get a device to measure sleep, you want to first explore why you're doing so. You, you know, and if you're wearing a device so that you can, you know, look back at the last two weeks to see where you got less sleep, where you got more sleep and try to get a handle of what's happening with your sleep. Well, that makes sense. You could use it for that. But I mean, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do that with a sleep diary, in which you take a handwritten and you write down what time you went to bed and what time you woke up and make those correlations yourself. You know, I work. I, sometimes I'm working with C-suite executives and I'm, or I'm working with athletes and they don't, because of this very reason, because they get anxious about their sleep data, they will have, they will wear some device and they will have me look at it on the dashboard to see how they're doing. Right. So I, you know, I, I, I will do this. If I tell people that if you have issues with anxiety related to your sleep, it's the better thing is to go talk to your primary care doctor and see if, if you can get help for that rather mm-hmm. than wearing a sleep device in an, in a way to uh, to you know make things better i mean I've, I've been wearing mine for four years now i feel like i feel like i know when i've had a good night's sleep and when i don't sometimes it doesn't sometimes it doesn't tell me but i traditionally have kept my own little diary ranking things one to five like sleep quality soreness um enthusiasm for training which when australian institute of sport have done studies on their athletes and just asking them to rank things um the motivation to train is a really good indicator of whether somebody's recovering um and probably right. more probably more accurate than than a sleep tracker mm-hmm. and um but i do i do agree with you that the behavioral changes that if you notice that there are patterns occurring with if you drink alcohol early in the evening or yeah. later on in the evening and there's that's there's a pattern of poor or or better sleep, depending on which one you choose. If 
if you exercise during the day and and go to sleep early and your sleep's better and then you exercise in the evening your sleep's bad then those patterns that you can identify can help you change behaviors and I, I right. think that that sort of learning is fantastic but I I think perhaps for most people they could probably wear something like this for a couple of months and find out most of that in yeah. the same way that, that with blood glucose right. monitors which is a totally different subject yeah um okay um these are some questions that I regularly get asked. I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time here, so I'm, I'm trying to help you um, with wrapping up. So these are things I commonly get asked by clients. So females in particular, and particularly those who are going through the menopause, will tell me, I wake up in the middle of the night, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning. What's wrong with me? Now, you mentioned sleep history, and I know that pre-industrial revolution diurnal sleep was quite yeah. common. And because of the industrial revolution, then we have this sort of like one sleep um, mm -hmm. period compressed. So is there anything wrong with people who wake up in the middle of the night? Or is it the fact that they can't get back to sleep that's the problem because they start sort of worrying? They, they right. have their own worry well, time. I think, I think the answer is that it's it's completely normal to wake up in the middle of the night. It's what it's what you do immediately after those wakenings that is a problem, right? So if you For most people, they wake up to turn off or go back to sleep, don't remember it. If you if you do wake up and you turn around, look at the clock, you know, tell what the time is, pick up your phone, start scrolling the internet. If you start stressing about the next day, et cetera, make calculations in your head, say, you know, and all of those things are bad. And if you and if you, after a certain age, if you're waking up and you have to go say, you have to go pee or you have to this things that are that are specifically or you're in pain, well, those things should be specifically addressed. Does that make sense? Mm. I mean, for most people, I think that if you wake, once you've set an alarm to wake up at a certain time and you've turned it to face the other way so you don't know what time the alarm goes off, if you do wake up in the middle of the night, say, to go to the bathroom or come back and you come back, you know, that's a good time to say practice mind body rest and, you know, deep breathing. There's that four, seven, eight breathing. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm. You, you know, do that, something that'll help you relax so that you can go back to sleep. Okay, so it's entirely natural, so people shouldn't worry, and it's and it's not something that's specifically related to the menopause. Then, for those females that I speak with, so so menopause, menopause, there is there are some changes in in how you know in temperature body body temperature regulation, and that can itself can disrupt your sleep, and that can really be a problem. There's treatment for it. They should talk to their primary care doctors, get on the treatment. And uh, sometimes, many times, the treatment is behavioral. So it's it's a it's a therapy. It's a clinically validated, scientifically, you know, uh, it's a it's a well researched therapy that helps with insomnia of that kind. That's okay. what I would. Do. Perfect. Thank you. Um, we talked about those people who traditionally come home from work and exercise. Um, we talked about sleep consistency and getting to bed I've, I've always been of the understanding that deep sleep happens mostly between 10 p.m and 2 p.m is that yes, 2 a.m is that right occurs in the first half of the night always. okay so if if i'm a shift worker and i'm working yes. a late shift and i don't get home from work until 12 yes does that mean i'm always going to be short of um the deep sleep or does my body that adapt? is a great question does my body and adapt over time right. right so you know, one of the things that decides what time you go to bed and what time you wake up is your clock, biological clock. So supposing mm -hmm. I'm a night owl, uh, you go to bed at 10 and you wake up at six in the morning for you between midnight and one o'clock is really the middle of the night. 
for me, if my if I'm a night owl and I go to bed at at one in the morning, for me midnight is not even the beginning of my night as yet. So it's you know it's not the it's not the clock hours that makes a difference. It's it's us. So in response to your question, if I if I went to bed at one o'clock and then woke up every day at nine in the morning, most of my deep sleep will occur in the first half of my sleep period. Ah, uh, okay. Depending on what time it is. However. The other, on the other hand, if I go to bed and every day, if I have to, so most of your dream sleep occurs in the second half of the night. And so if, if for some reason, instead of waking up at, at nine o'clock, which is my regular bedtime, I have to wake up every day at seven in the morning, because even though I go to bed at one, because I have to be at work, well, then I am shortchanging my dream sleep because most of my dream sleep occurs in the first, in the, uh, in the early morning hours. Okay. Well, talking of dream sleep. I've had these nights, I'm sure you have, where you just seem to have these amazing dreams. Um, but then, you know, you're just, it's just like a film being played out. And uh, But when you wake up, you feel really tired. Even though I've been right. in bed for, you know, even though I've been in bed for eight to nine hours and I've had lots of dreams, which would indicate REM sleep, as far as I'm aware, but then right. I feel exhausted. Is that just because my brain's tired from all the activity that's been going or is this? No, 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 no not really. So it's not because your brain's tired. So sometimes there are certain like medications, there are certain sleep disorders in which your dream sleep is going to be very vivid. So mm-hmm. that is one possibility. However, well, I don't take any medications. So. Right. so, however, most people don't really jump out of bed like saying that they're completely refreshed. It takes a while for people to get going, okay. and that's completely normal too. Right. When when people, you know, whether people are going to wake up refreshed or not from any length of sleep depends upon how you know what their previous level of sleep deprivation is. You know, what stage of sleep they're waking up from, etc. So the, it really does. My suggestion always is that that always try to consistently add a few extra minutes of sleep on a daily basis and see if there's improvement there. Uh, okay. So you talk about consistency. I've, I've again, I've heard, and so I'd, I'd love for you to confirm this that one of the biggest um, factors you can do in improving your sleep, even if you can't improve the length of sleep or time you're in bed is to improve your consistency. So at least you're making sure you're going to bed at the same time every night right. and getting up at the same time every morning. Is that right? Right. Yes. Yes. You should try to do that. And inadvertently that typically makes sure that you get enough time in bed. Okay. Because it does, it, you know, that's one of its side effects. And the reason why you want to do that is because one of the things I, I know, for example, here, the teenagers uh, would do is that they go to bed at a certain time. So supposing they go to bed at 11, wake up at 6.30 or 7 o'clock, which is they're not getting enough sleep. But then on the weekend, they go to bed at, say, 2 in the morning, and then they sleep until noon. Well, then what you're doing is that on a regular basis, you're it's like as if you took a plane and went from, you know, the East Coast to the West Coast or mm-hmm. came from, you know, England all the way to the East Coast in the, in the U.S. So you delayed your bedtime and your wake-up time. So mm-hmm. you're causing jet lag without actually traveling right. which is and if you do that repeatedly you know that itself can have detrimental effects on your health so consistency okay. really does help so uh, you know my conclusion from all this and please correct me if i'm wrong is that sleep's actually not that difficult it's the mon society is what's got in the way yes. and made it all difficult for everybody and if mm-hmm. if we follow some fairly simple guidelines right. like like firstly prioritizing sleep in our day rather than marginalizing it so we can get mm-hmm. more done actually prioritizing it 
um, and then take some simple steps like going to bed at the same time each night, sleeping in a cold, dark, quiet room, you know, making sure that if we do drink alcohol, at least make sure it's earlier on in the night. And, you know, if you are going to drink alcohol close to bedtime, just accept that your sleep's probably not going to be that good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some fairly simple steps that most yes. people can take. I appreciate that some people, for for some people, it's more complex, but for the majority of people listening, some fairly simple steps that they can take to improve mm-hmm. their sleep, but they have to prioritize it in the first place. They have to make it, uh, you know, the number one thing that they're going to do. Yeah, yes, yes. And I think, I think, um, I think the more that people are aware of it, uh, the you know, the more that we talk about it, the more likely people are going to prioritize it. Mm-hmm. And so, if it if it's on your radar, then you it really is a matter of you know allowing sleep to happen. And and there is you know there, I, there's this couple of new terms like called sleep procrastination, which is you know people get into they've again very busy lives, don't have any me time, get into bed or you know at night and they say decide well I want to spend like two hours on Netflix because by God I deserve it I've done nothing oh yes right and so that's why it's 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 easier to slowly make a change to the entire 24-hour period to allow sleep to fit in so I mean I think that's that's what my recommendation would be it's been a fascinating conversation thank you so much I've really appreciated your time today Dr. Singh you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, and look forward to listening to the episode. Yeah. Well, I hope the listeners do too. It's, uh, it's been great. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Dr. Singh for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human Podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and... I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review. And also, please join our High Performance Human podcast Facebook page. You'll be able to find a link for that in the show notes as well. So thank you for listening again. Have a great week and I'll see you on the next episode.